James chapter 5 this morning, please. James chapter 5. We've been in a series on James called Faith Works, and we're, we're coming to the home stretch now. We're in the last chapter, and we'll just have a couple more weeks in James, and then we'll move on to something else. Uh, but this morning, we come to really a very difficult chapter. There's some hard things in James chapter 5, and uh, this morning is no exception. James chapter 5, we're going to read the first six verses and talk on the topic. Rich or poor? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we believe every word of this book is your word. And so even a hard to read and hard to think about passage such as this one. Lord, we know it's you, it's you speaking, and so we pray today you'd, you'd speak to us and help us to hear what you have to say. Fill me with your spirit. I pray that there would be nothing, Lord, that would hinder my ability to preach today. Forgive me for anything that might hinder any sin, anything, Father, I pray. Forgiveness and cleansing, and help me, Lord, today to just preach the word of God clearly and accurately and practically and rightly, boldly saying anything I should, silent where I should be, uh, silent. Just help with all of those things. And help us all, Father, to have ears to hear today. For, Lord, we know this is a message for all of us from you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage of Scripture is talking about money. Money. Some people don't like it when the topic of money comes up in church. And some people think it's a topic that should never be discussed. It's off limits. I recall a couple coming here some time ago. And uh, sitting here in the service and listening, and it just happened to be one of those days when the topic of money had come up. And uh, I could tell, as these visitors were sitting there, that they were squirming in their seats, and then, of course, they never came back. And I inquired sometime later as to why they never came back, and I was told they weren't real thrilled with the subject matter. They weren't happy when I spoke about money. Hands off my wallet, preacher, is what most Christians seem to think. Well, let me start this morning by reminding you of a couple of things. Let me remind you about our method of teaching the Bible here at Friendship Bible Church, because that will help us to understand what's going on here today. This is Friendship Bible Church. We believe with all our hearts. This church has believed since its founding all the way back in 1828 that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, holy, uh, God-breathed word of the living God. We believe it is our only rule for faith and practice. We do not take our marching orders from any denomination. We do not take our marching orders from any man. That includes me. We believe the Bible is the only rule for our faith and practice. In our archives downstairs, we have an ancient, ancient book that when you open it up and you look at the very first page, there's a document in there that was written in, in the handwriting of one of the very original founders of the church way back. And here's what it says. It says, on this day came forward the baptized disciples of Jesus Christ our Lord and acknowledged him to be their only teacher and lawgiver and the Holy Scriptures to be their only guide and agreed to maintain Christian worship according to the aforesaid declaration. 
The Bible, from the beginning of the founding of this church, has been our only guide, our only rule to anything related to faith and practice. Paul said to Timothy, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This church, for much of its history, has been associated with what's called the Restoration Movement, the Christian churches, things like the Disciples of Christ or Christian churches. We've had a lot of names down through our history. We were the Randolph Baptist Church. Then we were the Disciples Church. Then we were the Randolph Christian Church. Then we were the Randolph Christian Church, parenthesis, Disciples of Christ, close parenthesis. And now we are Friendship Bible Church. But all the time, throughout all of that history, we have always believed And I certainly hope and pray we always will believe that the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. The Restoration Movement, those Christian churches, uh, some of them have drifted some from the faith these days. It's one of the reasons why we withdrew from the denomination. But they do have a couple of sayings that are absolutely wonderful. And one of the things that you'll hear often quoted in those, and we still have it in some of our documentation as well because it's a great saying. But they've always said, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Hands off my wallet, preacher. But how can we do that? The Bible speaks about this. The Bible speaks about this loudly. The Bible shouts about this matter. And so we must speak. Another thing to bear in mind here, before we even get into this, is how we pick and choose our topics here. We don't. We don't pick and choose our topics here. Our normal method of working through a book of the Bible precludes that. We started in James 1.1, and we'll finish here in James chapter 5 and verse number 20 in a couple of weeks. We work all the way through. You know, that has a couple of advantages. One is it keeps your preacher from getting off on his hobby horses. You know, if I like preaching about money, I might decide I want to do it every single week. But I can't do that because I am constrained to preach what the next passage is in the text. And it also forces the preacher to preach things he doesn't like to preach about. I, I frankly don't really like preaching about money. But I'm in James chapter 5. I have no choice because it is the topic that we have come to. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And someday, whenever the day comes that my time with you is over and someone else takes this pulpit, I hope that I will be able to say the same that I have not shunned to declare anything that is in the Bible. And so this morning we're going to talk about money. And we're going to talk about money not because uh, it's something that I think I want to talk about. We're going to talk about money this morning because we're in James chapter 5 and verse number 1. And that's where God has brought us. And that's the topic for today. We're not talking about money because our church is in some particular financial need. Praise God that is not the case. God has raised up in this place some wonderful givers. I mean, our offerings are, are wonderful. Our bills are paid. Every year, the, uh, the budgeted amount goes up. 
Uh, R2, the ends of the earth program, is something to make you weep every time you look and you see how people continue to support that. To think that we would be able, as a tiny little church like this, to support a missionary in every country of North America and South America and Europe and are well on our way to Africa and then Asia. Soon we will have done that. Every single nation of the earth, praise God. We're preparing to break ground in just a few months on a building program. We have, we believe, enough money set aside to pay cash for the entire thing. And that is because God has done that through the giving of God's people. So I I don't say this this morning because there is some need here. No, it's because we're in James chapter 5 and verse number 1. And that's what God's talking about there. And just so we're absolutely clear... I'm not talking about this this morning because I, the pastor, am bucking for a raise. That's not the case either. It's always important to make sure people understand that. Uh, I don't receive a salary here. You you need to know that too. I don't receive a salary. I receive the same uh, modest housing allowance that I received here when there were seven people sitting in the pews. We have not changed that in the last seven or eight years. Uh, That needs to change someday, by the way, whether that's with me or with somebody else. The church does have a responsibility to take care of its pastor. Uh, but, you know, that's not necessary right now. God has blessed me in other ways, and, and I, uh, he pays my bills, and I don't have to worry about it. But that's not why we're talking about it today. We're talking about it today because we are in James chapter 5. And God has just, in his sovereignty and grace, led us to the topic today. So let's see what James has to say about it. He, obviously, you noticed as we read it, approaches this from a very negative direction. He, uh, he approaches it in a, in a very, uh, I don't know, apparently people had a very messed up view or were really messed up in this matter of money that he was writing to. He, uh, he talks to a group of people who, here who were obtaining money the wrong way. They were also using money the wrong way. And they were apparently oblivious to what that was doing to them. So I'd like to kind of break down our thoughts along those three lines. Money, don't get it the wrong way. Money. Don't use it the wrong way. And money, don't let it use you the wrong way. Let's look at those three things. First of all, look at verse number four again. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Money, don't get it the wrong way. Verse number six, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. James talks about two different wrong ways to obtain money that apparently were a problem with those that he was writing to today. He says, don't enrich yourself by defrauding others, in that verse 4. And he says, don't enrich yourself by hurting others. That's what he's talking about there in verse number 6. Don't enrich yourself by defrauding others. Now, the people James was scolding here were guilty of obtaining their wealth in a very specific way. And defrauding others in a very specific way. In their case, it had, it had its roots in the custom of the day. And the custom of the day was when, when they would hire somebody, they would hire them for one day and one day only and pay them at the end of the day. That was just the way things happened back then. That culture, hired for a day, paid to the conclusion of that day. I had a friend who worked, uh, some years ago I had a friend who worked as an electrician of some sort on the high-tension towers that you see going across you know, the land of our country. And he told me one time that they had a saying uh, amongst all the people who worked for that. He said, uh, every day is payday on the high line. And that was because it was such dangerous work and such terrifying work. 
that people would come for one day, and that was all they could handle. And so they had just determined that they were going to hire you for a day and pay you for a day. And that was the way it worked. Well, that's exactly the way things were back in the culture of this day. If we had time, we'd go to Matthew chapter 20, and you could see the parable of the, of the workers in the field that Jesus told you. See, that's exactly what happened. They went into the marketplace, they hired somebody for a day, they paid them at the end of the day. The law specifically protected that arrangement, and the law specifically condemned the very kind of fraud that James is here apparently accusing these folks of. Deuteronomy chapter 24, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Leviticus 19, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Jeremiah 22, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. This is exactly what James said these folks were doing. They were enriching themselves by defrauding others, promising them pay, and then not giving them their pay. One of the sources I consulted in developing this message said it, it even goes beyond that. It said that little phrase, you have kept back, kept back, it indicates that it was not paid, nor would it ever be. So it wasn't just a matter of fraud. It actually went beyond it. It was a matter of theft. They were actually stealing from those, keeping that which did not belong to them. So on the one hand, we could look at this and we could say, well, you know, that's cool, that's interesting, that's very fascinating study there, Pastor, but it has nothing to do with us today because it was rooted in the culture of their day. And on the one hand, we would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. But there is also ample application we can make to our day, can't we? Because people do get defrauded today. And people do enrich themselves today. They do obtain wealth by fraud today. People do steal today. Even Christians, sadly, are tempted and fall in both of those areas. We need to seek God's help in staying honest. We need to seek God's help in not allowing that to happen. I try every time we take an offering, I try to remember as I pray, to pray that God would help us as a church to always be honest in everything that we do financially. You've probably heard me pray it. But I think we need to say the same thing as individuals. Help me, Lord, to not enrich myself by defrauding. Help me to not be dishonest, never obtaining wealth by fraud or dishonest means. Paul said, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Christians should be honest in all our financial dealings. We, you know, we really ought to pay our bills. That would be a good thing. We ought to pay our taxes. We ought to pay any and all of our obligations. We ought not to be in the number of those who the world looks down on as hypocrites because we preach honesty and then live dishonestly. Bringing shame on the name of our Lord. I had a friend one time. I sold him a car. And it was a perfectly fine car. It really was. Believe me when I tell you it was a perfectly fine car. I sold him this car. And I think I made him a decent enough deal. I can't even remember how much it was. I sold him the car. He says, you don't have any money right now. He said, I'll pay you what I can. Time came and went. Never received payment for the car. And then one day, he's driving it down the road, and he blew it up on the road. 
And then he used that from then on to explain why he was never going to pay me for the car. Now, you can think what you want, but you know what I think? I think this was a man who named the name of Christ and defrauded and stole from somebody else. That's what I think. And so often we do the same thing. James says here, don't enrich yourself by defrauding others. He says in verse number 6, don't enrich yourself by hurting others. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 is a hard verse. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now what is James talking about there? I'm not exactly sure what he's saying. Some believe that he's saying that people were actually guilty of murder in order to enrich themselves. But I struggle with that because James' audience is Christians. He's writing to believers here. And I think we'd have a bigger issue if that was the case than just this financial stuff he's talking about here. I don't think these people are actually guilty of real murder. I think it's more that he's speaking figuratively here. I think he's pointing out that they had hurt others by the way they had enriched themselves. And I don't think I need to say a lot about this. Because I think every single believer who is in the sound of my voice this morning would certainly never want to be guilty of harming somebody else in order to enrich themselves. Or would we? You know, there is at least one area that I feel like sometimes we don't talk about enough. And so let me toss it out, because I do believe there is an area where Christians and other people benefit personally by personally harming somebody else. That's the area of gambling. You know, I can't go to any single verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not gamble. If anybody finds one, would you please show it to me? Because I'd like to have it. Because I don't think Christians should gamble. (coughs) But I I have no verse that I can go to. Thou shalt not gamble. But here's a verse I can go to. Because this verse tells me that I must not enrich myself by hurting somebody else. And you know, it is impossible to gamble. It is impossible to win at gambling without hurting somebody else. You know that's true, right? Nobody wins Unless somebody else loses. That's the way gambling works. Now, I don't believe Christians should gamble. And I believe this is why. I believe that you are simply taking money from other people. And statistics tell us that the ones who are the losers most in that are the ones who can least afford to lose in that. Now, I don't want to get off on a hobby horse. I don't want to go nuts with it. But I think that's one of the areas we might apply this. Don't enrich yourself by hurting others. So James says money. Don't get it the wrong way. And then he goes on and he says, money, don't use it the wrong way. Look at verse number three. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Look at verse number five. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Don't use it the wrong way. And again, two things he mentions here. He says, don't hoard it. He says, don't waste it. Those two things. Don't hoard it. That phrase, heaping up treasure, is talking about hoarding. Now, some folks might look at that and they might think he's just talking about saving for a rainy day. He's just talking about forethought and and thinking ahead and and planning and all those things that, that we actually think are good things and actually are good things. They're taught in the Bible. We don't have to look very far at all to find out that we are supposed to be thinking ahead and we're supposed to be saving for the future. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. It's encouraged. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The book of Proverbs is filled with references to this, that we should be planners. We should be thinking ahead. We should be laying some aside, saving 
so that we have what we need for that rainy day. So if that's what James was referring to, he'd have to ask, what's your problem, man? Because the Bible says this is a good thing. That can't be what James is talking about. No, what he's talking about here goes far beyond that. He's talking about hoarding. Like the television program that I've never watched, but I've seen advertised called Hoarders, where people just have their house filled top to bottom with stuff. Hoarding, seen in the countless examples of people who live poorly, but have accumulated and accumulated and accumulated so much stuff that they'll never be able to get enough. Can't even think about this without wondering if James was thinking about Jesus' parable of the rich pool of Luke. We talked about that last week, so I won't mention it again. John D. Rockefeller was a rich man, a multimillionaire. And one day a reporter asked John Rockefeller, he said, how much money is enough? And John Rockefeller, in a very honest moment, said, just a little bit more. See, that's hoarding, never being able to get enough. James says, that's going too far. Don't use your money that way. Don't hoard it. He says, don't waste it. Verse number five. Verse number five, we read a minute ago, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. If that verse does not speak to us as American Christians, <laughs> we are plainly not listening. That verse must have been written with America in mind. You have lived in luxury and pleasure throughout, throughout your life. Pleasure there, that, that's an interesting word. It means to lead a soft life. Is that America? I think it might be. It's used only here in the New Testament, the only place. That word luxury there translates a word that means to live voluptuously or wantonly. Used only here and in one other place, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We might translate that verse as, You have lived self-indulgently on the earth and have lived luxuriously. Does that sound like America? Boy, it does to me. Warren Wiersbe told of a shopping spree. And the shopping spree was not an American. This was an, an oil-rich sultan. But listen to this shopping spree. One shopping spree that this guy went on. It says here that he purchased 19 Cadillacs, one for each of his 19 wives. He paid extra to have the cars lengthened. He also bought two Porsches, six Mercedes, a $40,000 speedboat, and a truck for hauling it. Add to the list 16 refrigerators, $47,000 worth of women's luxury luggage, two Florida grapefruit trees, I didn't understand that one. <laughs> Two reclining chairs and one slot machine. His total bill was $1.5 million, and he had to pay another 194500 to have everything delivered. Now, I don't think too many of us in this room live that luxuriously or wantonly. We're not guilty of that. Few of us will ever have the opportunity for such self-indulgence. But as American Christians, we do live on a different plane than the rest of the world. We do. And we find ourselves often living self-indulgent and luxurious lives that James warns us against here. I came across an interesting statistic, and statistics are always dangerous, you know. I came across this from a Harper Magazine article, from, and this is a little bit dated, from 2005. And it was talking about, you know, some of the things that Americans spend money on. But there were three things there that jumped out at me. Let me just share these three. One said, the amount the U.S. spends annually on imported toys. The amount the U.S. spends annually on imported toys. Now, you wouldn't think that would be that big of a number. $23 billion, $631 million. The amount spent by the next 10 highest 
toy importing companies in the world. So here's us. Here's the next 10. 21 billion 729 million. And so we spend $2 billion more per year on toys than the rest, the other 10 spend in the same amount of time. And that was an amazing thing to me. But then I, I read this third thing, and this one, I can't get my brain around this one. This one says the average number of credit cards per U.S. household. Now, what would you think that number would be? If, I, if somebody had asked me the average number of credit cards per U.S. household, I would have thought, oh, I don't know, three, four, something like that. If there was a whole bunch of people in the house, I don't know, maybe six or seven. You know what the average number of credit cards per U.S. household is? According to this, 12.7. I can't get my brain around that. 12.7. A minute ago, we mentioned Jesus' parable of the rich fool. Right before he told that parable, he said something that we need to take heed and beware. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So, money. Don't use it the wrong way. Don't hoard it. Don't waste it. The third thing James talks about here is in verses 2 and 3. Look at those verses. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. In this last part, I think James is saying money. Don't let it use you the wrong way. Recognize what it's doing to you. And again, he says two things here. The first thing he says about it is it's temporary. It rots. I recently purchased a new pickup truck, and it's all shiny and nice right now. But you know I have no illusions about that pickup truck. Before I can blink an eye, I know that it'll be dented. It'll be rusty. It'll be rotting. See, that's what happens with material possessions. Regardless of their form, they don't last. Metal rusts. Wood decays. Rots. Clothing gets torn up by moths and rots. James' mind must have been on his brother's words from Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are mothy, he said. Calvin interpreted this passage in an interesting way. He thought this passage described the hoarders. He thought this passage described those who had hoarded things up and had no use for them. They had hoarded all this wealth, and now they would look at this wealth, and it was useless, rotted, of no value. Many of us have known people who lived a whole life where they accumulated and accumulated and accumulated and accumulated. And then when they died, their family went through their effects and found drawer after drawer after drawer of things that had never been used. Safe deposit boxes full of wealth that had never been touched and never spent and now never would be. Material possessions are temporary. That's what James is saying. They're temporary. And all of us must learn that the wealth we so strive to accumulate now simply won't last forever. It can't be trusted. Despite how much uh, we think we've invested it safely and protected it, it's not. It can't be trusted. It will go away. It will cease to exist. It will be wiped out. Many people trust that the American government will be here forever. My boss said to me one day, and the election of a particular president who shall, shall remain nameless, he said to me one day when I was bemoaning that, 
He said, It'll, it's still America, Bill. It'll always be America, Bill. No, it won't. America will not be here forever. You say, are you a prophet, Bill? No, I'm not. I just happen to have a Bible, and I know what the Bible says. America will not be here forever. If you look on your money, I think somewhere on there it says that it's backed by the full faith of the American government. <laughs> you think that's going to be around? It's not going to be around. The American dollar will go away. My Bible tells me that. And if that's what you're trusting in. James says it's not something you should trust in. In 1956, Jacques Lowe was a photographer of Robert F. Kennedy. Kennedy's father, Joseph, was so impressed with Lowe that he asked him to photograph John F. Kennedy and his wife. Three years later, Lowe became the official photographer of Kennedy's presidential campaign. And after Kennedy was elected, Lowe became his personal photographer. Lowe was a very meticulous photographer. He had an estimated 40,000 negatives of images of John F. Kennedy and his family though only 300 to 400 were ever made public. While he was alive, Lowe watchfully monitored the use of his pictures. When a publication or museum wanted prints, he personally took the negatives to the lab for printing. When the job was done, he retrieved them himself. Lowe's daughter, Thomasina, is anybody named Thomasina? I know, that's an interesting name. I think that was a cat's name one time, wasn't it? Lowe's daughter, Thomasina, said, he was being more prudent than most. He really believed they were as safe as they could ever be. He chose to have them there because he was six blocks away from them, and he felt psychologically as if they were under his bed. All 40,000 negatives were kept in a safe deposit vault at the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank branch at 5 World Trade Center, a nine-story building that was heavily damaged in the September 11th attacks. A team of engineers, a 100-ton crane, forklifts, iron workers, and dump trucks were brought in as part of a plan to move the vault from the second floor. But workers found major fire damage in the vault area. Ashes filled the safe deposit boxes. The only thing that would have survived was metal or stone. September 11th. Quite a reminder, isn't it, that everything is temporary. And it can be gone in a heartbeat. James says, money it's temporary. It rots. He also says it's dangerous. It rots you. In verse number one, James warned of miseries that will come. And I think he was talking there about miseries both near and far. For the people he was talking about here, you know what they were? They were ten years away, give or take, from the absolute destruction of Jerusalem. And all the things that they were trusting in and believing in were going to be leveled to the ground. They couldn't know that at this point, but they were. And so there was a nearness to his prophecy, to what he was saying. And also, I think he was talking about the future judgment that all believers will face. He said it will eat your flesh like fire. Ah, that's an amazing sentence, and it's an amazing thought. There's this present tense to the misery that comes from the misuse of wealth. But he's also reminding us here of the impending judgment before the Lord of hosts. There is a future tense to it as well. Paul told Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. When a person becomes obsessed with the accumulation of wealth, it affects them. It changes them negatively. It doesn't have to, but it often does. Abraham was a very wealthy man, one of the wealthiest men in the Old Testament, and yet because he trusted God more than his wealth, that didn't happen to him. 
But you don't have to look far to find his nephew Lot, who was ruined because of the fact that he was seeking after that, ruined his life. Wearsby said, it's good to have riches in your hand, provided they do not get into your heart. The psalmist said, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And James might have added, if you do, they will rot you from the inside out. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what should we say about all these things? James is definitely being extremely negative here, isn't he? He's thundered in this passage. He said, money, don't get it the wrong way. Money, don't use it the wrong way. And money, don't let it use you. And perhaps this morning you're sitting there and you're saying, all right, enough. I don't want to use my wallet in all of those wrong ways. I get it. What should I do? What's the right way? What's the right way for us to use our wallets? Well, even though the Bible, or James approaches us from the negative side, the Bible is filled with all kinds of other teaching. And so let me just, in the last couple of minutes here, and I know I've gone a little bit long here this morning, but in the last couple of minutes, let me just mention a couple of principles from Scripture that are positive, that do tell us what we should do. And how we ought to approach our finances and our wealth and our money. Just a few. First of all, I would suggest we should live recognizing that God owns everything. God owns it all. We're not the owners. God is. We are but managers. It is his wealth. One man said, you and I may possess many things, but we don't own them. God is the owner of everything. And we are his stewards. You know, I believe this is the absolute key principle in the Bible for understanding how we ought to treat money. If we don't get this one, we'll get none of the rest. If we do get this one, all the rest will fall into place. It's all God's. It's not ours. He has entrusted it to us for just a little bit of time. God said, every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills in Psalm chapter 15, verse 10. So... We should live recognizing God owns everything. We should use what God has entrusted to us in order to obtain heavenly reward. Jesus put it like this, and I, we've quoted from this verse a couple times already, but hear what Jesus said. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we should use what God has entrusted to us. In order to obtain heavenly reward. I loved what that missionary lady said this morning. Did you catch that? One of the very last things she said was keep your focus on heaven. That's good. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's the way we as believers ought to live. Number three, we ought to worship God with our money. We take an offering every Lord's Day. Don't apologize for that. Because the Bible teaches us to give. And we're even given an amount. The Bible says that we're to tithe or give one-tenth 
of our income to God. Luke chapter 6, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Malachi chapter 3, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God did not give us the instruction to give because he needs our money. Absolutely not. He gave us this instruction so we would learn to trust him. And the question is, do you trust him? Do I trust him? Or are we willing to trust him with everything except our wallet? Number four, we should do good works with our money. Good works. Let's revisit Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, when he said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Notice he didn't sell them. They had to give everything away. Did you notice that? He said God has given us all things to enjoy. God's not about us suffering and starving. He wants us to be happy. And if he has chosen to give us wealth and riches and and, and possessions, he has done so because he loves us and wants us to enjoy them. But notice he also says that we should do good, that we should be rich in good works, that we should be ready to give, that we should be willing to share. Sean Connery starred in a movie about King Arthur. I can't remember the name of the movie. I think it might have been something like King Arthur. I'm not sure. (laughs) Something like that. I don't remember much about the movie, but I remember one particular line that King Arthur said in that movie. He was talking to his enemy. What was that guy's name? Mortimer or something like that. And he said to him, God makes us strong for a while so that we can help one another. You know, and if God has made you rich for a while, brothers, sisters, It's not only so that you might enjoy the good things of life. That's part of it. He's given you all things richly to enjoy, but also so that you might help others. See, the problem of rich church members hoarding it back and not helping those with less is nothing new. Ambrose. Ambrose lived in the 4th century. He wrote this. He says, there is your brother, naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. That just cracks me up. I could have read yesterday. It was in the 4th century. Basil the Great. He was a theologian and a bishop in modern-day Turkey. In the 4th century, he wrote, The bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. In every generation, we Christians need to be reminded of this, that God has given us what he has given, that we might do good for others. Oh, how we need to be reminded of that. And one last thing. We should do what we can, while we can, for the time is short. I read this illustration in a book called Deepening Your Relationship with God, The Life-Changing Power of Prayer by Ben Patterson. This particular illustration was about how we have so little time to pray. But I want you to think about it just in general, because it tells us how little time we have to do it. Here's what he says. He says, if you are 35, 35 years old, you have 500 days to live. How does he arrive at that? 
He says, subtract the time you will spend sleeping, working, and tending to personal matters such as hygiene, odd chores, eating, and traveling. That means that in the next 36 years, you have 500 days. That's not much time. That's not much time. He was talking about prayer, but it is more general than that. And if that's all we've got is just those few days that we can actually do something for somebody else. Well, we ought to get that. We ought to recognize that we need to do what we can, while we can, for the time is short. May we recognize the shortness of time, the nearness of judgment, and the tiny window of opportunity that is ours. I'm sure there's other principles we could draw, but we'll stop there. There are some to get us thinking about the right way to use whatever wealth God has entrusted us with. Christians, brothers, sisters, may we not be guilty of obtaining wealth the wrong way. May we not be guilty of using it the wrong way or letting it use us to our detriment. May we rather remember that God owns it all. He has entrusted it to us for a while so that we might worship him and help others while we can.